Thanks for tuning in to Small Big Wings, a window to the world of young, ambitious problem solvers. They are makers, designers, builders, hackers, scientists who heard their inner voice and amplified it. To learn more about our guest and to view the highlights of this episode, head on over to fbw.hvj.coach. Our guest today is Salman Ansari. Salman has been lucky to have held a lot of different roles and explored a lot of varied interests. He has been a startup founder, software engineer, manager, teacher, public speaker, advisor, DJ, and writer. He has also spent a lot of time on artistic hobbies such as illustration and animation. He now lives life embracing his inner polymath. I myself am a generalist and think that I am playing a pretty important role with the people I am working with. And I thought that it's a good idea to get Salman on this podcast for people to know that being generalists is a great strength and seek Salman out on how we can make this strength even sharper. Welcome Salman on the Small Big Wins podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Salman, what drew me to you was that wonderful polymath playbook. And within that, I was enchanted when you gave us the extended version of the oft-used sentence, a jack of all trades is a master of none. And the extended version says, a jack of all trades is a master of none, but oftentimes better than a master of one. And, and I had never seen this before. <laughs> I definitely need to ask you, where and how did you find this one statement which sums up all of what you are? Yeah, absolutely. I think there, there's, uh, it's an interesting question someone had asked me is how did you come upon this framework of, of thinking as a polymath or, or embracing that approach? And I actually had at some point in my life reached a point of frustration where I felt like you described some of the different roles I've held and I hadn't really reached a positive viewpoint of that yet. I viewed it as maybe there's something wrong with me. I get into these roles and then I get bored and, or I want to try something different. And I would keep seeing my peers who have pursued this, sort of a, a single path and reach higher and higher levels. And I wondered, am I sabotaging myself? And, and I think that you get signals like that. You feel like if I don't fit in, maybe there is something wrong. And so I started to try and search for examples where maybe there is a path to this. And We've all heard about the examples of Leonardo da Vinci and, and those kinds of sort of Renaissance polymaths. But personally, I never really resonated that strongly with them. I felt like they lived in a different world in a different time, and it just didn't really apply to me. And so I started to look around. And one resource I did find is there's a, there's a book called The Polymath by Wakas. And the book, he goes through a lot of these examples, which one doesn't need to see that many before you get the, the gist of the idea. But more than that, I found the quote uh, in the book and it blew me away. And actually, if you look into it, it's one of those things where there isn't, you know, clear proven fact that, oh, the quote was this quote at this year. And then later someone changed it to that year. It's a little fuzzy, but I feel like it's one of those things where you can choose the meaning that makes most sense to you. And for me, I looked at it and it was an opportunity for me to choose the extended meaning as it's true intent. I, I just choose to believe that. 
The other thing I, I realized was this was a South Asian author who was embracing this sort of lifestyle. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe there are examples where I can follow this. The same way folks who might listen to your podcast and see your example follow through. But that is where I found it. And he starts to talk about some of the principles. And that really spurred me to start looking at my own life in a retrospective way and say, okay, so far I've looked at it as just a, a jumble of things that happened. And maybe I, even I called it maybe confusion, right? If you keep changing something, maybe it's because you're confused. So I started to look, maybe there's actually a pattern. Maybe there's actually a method to this madness. And that's when I started to formulate the ideas for this post. And the funny thing is, when I started to write it, I started extracting some of those principles that you might have seen taking mental models from one industry and applying them to others. Those are things I came upon. And there was a little bit of personal story and a little bit of social struggle and almost deleted it, actually. It was, I was very close to not publishing it at all. And it, as it turns out, when the post picked up a lot of traction and got shared a lot by people, the things that people resonated with was the personal story. And they were resonated with two things in particular. One was they just saw me as a person who had done these things in, in different places. And they said, oh, okay, maybe I can too, in the same way that, that I had felt when I saw their examples. And the second thing that I think was the most powerful was I spoke about the struggle, specifically the social struggles that happen. You find that no matter what group you're in, sometimes you're in a group, I talked about this, where I used to go to this meetup specifically for software engineers who develop for iOS. And everyone in that group was like, oh, I've been doing this since Mac 1 and since before OS X was called OS X and, and all these things. And I was sitting there, I've been doing this for a few years. Maybe I'll do it for a few more. I don't know, maybe I'll do something else. And it just, I just felt really out of place. And I really felt like I can't connect with them. I can't be as close to them because we're just different. And people really resonated with that, actually. A lot of people told me that they thought that, there was, that they were not very good socially. By very good, they thought they were missing some tact or some skill to participate in society effectively. And I think that as much as I learned a lot through writing this post, I learned a lot through the reaction. Like it's not really about me. It's if when people resonate with something, it says something about that audience that they are basically, a lot of people have felt like they haven't had a choice and they felt like they're doing it wrong. And when they see something that's, hey, maybe maybe there's a different way, then, then they do get excited. I will say though that a lot of folks have read it and they get excited, but as you pointed out, I think in the first comment when we first started chatting today was it takes a lot of work. Like it's, you can say, oh, here's, let's be more generalist, let's be more polymath. And, and then it's, oh, now you actually have to do it. And it's not easy. And actually as I was walking just to this morning, I was thinking about it and it's like a trade-off. It's like a trade-off between internal struggle versus external struggle. So if you participate in a very traditional way in our sort of, let's say a capitalist society where you are expected to you know, perform a very specific function, you will succeed externally in that way. You will not receive much resistance. You will be able to proceed at will, but you will experience a lot of internal strife, probably. If you're the kind of person that, that operates this way, you're gonna feel like you wanna do different things and, and you're gonna have to reconcile that. Then on the flip side, if you embrace this internal need to diversify, then now you're going to hit this external struggle where you're going to have to find a way to make it work 
in this society that is really designed for specialists. So that's the thing that I find interesting is even though I have started this journey and, and, and I talk about it and I'm meeting more and more people talk about it, it's a constant struggle to make it work because you still are afraid that what are you missing out on? Like the FOMO of a specialist career, I guess you could say, the financial FOMO, all these types of things. Because it's, yeah, I think that's one thing I've tried to make sure I emphasize after the fact, after writing this was like, yes, I know I, I talked about how I'm doing this, but just so you know, it's a lot of struggle. Indeed. I think you also say that once you decided to start doing this, one of your major anxieties even though if it was not directly related to finance, but it was related to the anxiety of not spending your time earning. Yeah, yeah. So that's a whole, wow, that's a big one. Because <laughs> I think that you write about this, you talk about awareness and, and the act of reflection. And I think that one thing I have discovered is that a lot of times when we talk about these things like specialists and generalists and careers, we think about the sort of financial structures and we think about those challenges. But there's also a large category of people who are in a position where they could experiment. They have some financial stability behind them. They've probably worked for 20 years, 10 years to get to that stage, but they still don't feel comfortable to try these different things. So that's worth analyzing. So that's what you're hitting at. It's like, why? What's that other barrier? And that is what I went through is, is this process of sort of introspection. And it was actually triggered by the, a startup I was co-founding. I had spent two years basically building a startup as a co-founder CTO, this healthcare startup. And it went pretty well, but in the end, the model didn't work and we had to shutter it. And it was very challenging. It burned me out completely for a number of reasons. And actually, I ended up taking a bunch of time off and reflecting. And I'm really thankful in retrospect for that, because it gave me time to ask myself that question of like, why is it so difficult for me to just stop working for even a few weeks? Why do I feel so fundamentally uncomfortable with it? And I think that there's a lot of studies and philosophical writing that people are now doing to address this topic. One of the people who I've been following, his name is Andrew Taggart. He writes about this concept of total work, which is basically the fundamental idea behind it is that, especially after the industrial era, we reached a realigning in society where society became structured to facilitate the individual's work. So everyone could have their role and they could get better and better at that individual role. And we talked about it from the angle of specialization. But there's another angle, which is that identity, the angle of identity. And what ended up happening through this is that your work became your identity, which meant that if you're not working, you have no identity. Your purpose is your work. So if you don't work, you are worthless. Now, if I say that, it sounds like maybe an outlandish statement, but that's actually what our structures currently say. That is why when you stop working, even when you are still have a job, just to take time on the weekends, people have difficulty sitting and relaxing because they're like, oh, maybe I should go do some chores or oh, maybe I should go and be productive in this other way. So this sort of productivity fetish, as some people call it, has taken over and it makes it very difficult for you to explore other sides of you that may arise naturally and organically. So fast forwarding to... More recently, when I, I left a full-time job, I was working at uh, a big tech company. I left that job to try and figure out, can I work part-time and use, so I, wor I work now maybe a few days, a couple of days a week on a startup with a friend. 
And the rest of the time I used to creatively explore, work on these kinds of projects. And half of the battle is just like resisting this urge, this guilt that, that sort of forces you to want to do some more kind of productive work. But what I have found is that if I create empty space and I withhold and respect that empty space, amazing things happen serendipitously. So serendipity is a source of the kind of work that is more true to us that we cannot plan for. Probably, I think probably the best work I will do will be work that I didn't intend to do. As in, it'll be work that I created an environment for, facilitated and allowed to come through. But I did not sit and write it in some, okay, annual review 2020, next year I'm going to do this. I really just, I really believe in that. And a lot of the stuff that I've been doing recently, now I find myself writing children's fables for adults as a, a way so I can share a little bit more about that. But basically, I've been working on short stories in these sort of like little prince style stories that share some kind of moral or lesson. And could I have planned that? No. Have I been writing stories before? No. It's just something that appears. But I actually think it'll be among the more important work that I do. So to like circle back to your question, it takes practice and intention to give yourself permission to play, to breathe, to exist. And the other parts of you start to show up and start to say, hey, hey, there's room for me here now. And those will be your guideposts of what are these other things. And, and that's why it, it doesn't always have to go in that order. But that's why a lot of people who they will say, hey, I'm working full time. I wish I was doing other things, but I don't even know what I would do. I, when I finish work, all I want to do is just watch TV and, and, and relax. And that's because they don't have space. There's no space for any of that to foster. A separate topic is when you watch TV, you're not actually relaxing anyway. You're actually adding more burden, which as someone who watches TV, like I know this, it doesn't mean that I never watch TV. It just means that I recognize like some days I have to just do nothing. I'll actually end on that as an example. Like when I was trying to write these stories, I was actually a little scared because I didn't know, I don't know how to write stories. I'm not like a story writer. Yet stories were appearing and people would tell me these are interesting stories, please write more of them. And I would be like, I don't know how to write them. I didn't try to write them, they just appeared. And so what I've learned is if I just facilitate the environment, which basically means don't fill my calendar, go on walks now and then, don't put too much pressure on myself, leave some empty room on certain days, then things just appear. Like you don't have to, it, nothing ha not everything has to be like a productive, you sit down and, and hammer at this. On the flip side, yeah, you do have to work on that. But I feel like if more of us really gave ourselves that space to, it's not doing nothing, it's not being lazy, it's facilitating a different kind of intellectual activity. Actually, this guy, Joseph Piper, he wrote a book called Leisure, The Basis of Culture. He wrote this in the 1940s, right after World War II. The opening is stunning. I always remember it. It's literally right after the war. And so he opens by saying, I know this isn't a great time to talk about leisure, but actually, this is the perfect time to talk about leisure. And what he means by that is, in fact, it's very relevant to what we're going through right now through this pandemic. You might think, Things are difficult, things are bad. So who has time to think about leisure and how we live our life? And it's actually the opposite. You can take that view or you can take the opposite view and say, do we really just want to go back to exactly the way things were? Did we learn nothing? 
No, we're not going to change anything. We went through all this and we're not going to change anything. So people coming out of a world war were like, oh, we're going to rethink things. And they were open to that conversation. And his premise was the, the ideas from the, the Greek philosopher era, where they would, like today, we, we, we basically live to work. Going back to what I said, like basically your purpose is to work. So you're here. The reason you're alive is to work. So go and do some work. There they would work for a little bit and not think much of it, only to live. So they would work a little bit enough to sustain their existence, basically. And that's all that work was seen as, is like a facilitation of basic needs. Then they would go and debate. So what we are doing right now is leisure. It's engaging in the politics of conversation and discourse. Imagine if our society was structured to facilitate essentially work to fulfill our basic needs and then create environments where we promote our intellectual prosperity. Can you imagine if actually society was designed around that rather than you having to resist and fight and pull just to give yourself five minutes of space to think? It would be a different world. What is your view on capitalism? I, I would say there's folks who have studied it in detail that can probably comment on it. I would not say I'm one of those people. What I would say is I think one interesting thing that I realized was I grew up like most people you accept capitalism, kind of the way you grow up with a certain religion. You just receive it and you're, that is the way. And then you see some decent examples of it, but then you're, there's a lot of problems. So say you could pick any argument. You say, oh, income inequality or, or this kind of specialization or any of these examples. And then basically the push is you want us to be in a communist or, or socialist. Look at these other techniques that were tried. And according to a large percent of the world, did not work. According to some percent of the world, did still work. So if you think about it, of all the intelligence and intellect that we have in this world, we're basically saying, I don't know, there's, we haven't really found a better one. So I guess this is fine. So that would be my comment on it, is that most of us looked at it and said, I guess this is fine. And it has its downfalls and it has its overall, it's still the sort of the best system that we can come up with. And sometimes I wonder, and I recognize quite possibly very naively, as someone who hasn't studied these systems in depth, there could be a significant amount of naivety in, in what I'm saying. But I imagine a scenario where you did have people whose, whose approach and space and purpose was to discuss these kinds of systems and to look at, say, hey, we have every country on earth as a running experiment in how these systems could operate. Let's look at them all. Let's like look at what has worked and what hasn't worked. And maybe it's not necessarily a government, but like an independent body of thought. When you used to have more of a philosophical sort of lean to society, you had these groups organically come up because they were working on the most important problems and what they would discuss, which is like how we live as people. <laughs> like, I guess what I would say is I'm not, I try, actually I received this as criticism to, to one of my posts, which I really appreciated. One of the criticisms of my post was, hey, you're talking about shifting yourself and changing yourself and empowering yourself. That's great. But what you really need to do is change the structure, right? And this is a valid argument. It's, you could apply the same lens to any discussions around racial inequalities and systemic biases around that. You can't go to someone and say, hey, change yourself. It's, I'm, especially against the Black community, there's significant systemic injustice and discrimination that they're, just by changing themselves, they can't overcome those. And so you could make an argument that the system really is designed in a certain way where it needs to change fundamentally. I don't disagree with that. I agree with that. I just don't necessarily know 
how to go about that change. And so what you can do is change yourself, right? You can try and navigate it and recognize the trade-offs you have to make along the way. You're not going to have exactly what you have today, plus freedom and and ability to mix in different things. You're never going to be the absolute best of the best in this thing. You're never going to, maybe you won't even make as much money, but maybe it'll force you to ask the question of, okay, but what was the point of the money anyway, if I wasn't internally fulfilled? If you are, if you've managed to do that's great. But I think a lot of people will be forced to answer that question. Yeah, I think there's room for some kind of intellectual body that would analyze these different systems and then advise us on where to move forward and, and how we can change it. But you know, what that structure is, how it does. I actually had someone who had studied philosophy and ended up doing something else, which is which I, I understand to be quite a common thing. Basically, people study philosophy and then they get a bit jaded because you're studying things, but you're not able to actually apply them. And I think this points to the disconnect. We don't have a philosophical body that can actually influence the way that our governments operate. We don't have that entity. What does that look like? I don't know. But I imagine like we have three system checks and balances. What if there was another one that did longer term philosophical analysis of how these systems have operated and then concludes that, you know what, it's not quite working. We've just got rampant inequality. We've got people who aren't happy. We've got people who are working themselves to death and they don't know why. There's something wrong. Here's what we're going to try. I don't know. I think that's a very interesting point. And my two bits on that is there's no doubt capitalism has done great things for our world. But I think capitalism, which is backed only by hygiene factors, is not good enough. I think it has to be backed by the motivational factors. And I think if organizations can be instrumental in helping people find authenticity, meaning mm. as part of organizational culture, yeah. I, think, I think that could be so much fun. I think you're right. I think that's true. Let me ask you a different question because it's one that's plagued me. I go back and forth. I tend to argue with myself on this. I think you're right. There's room for organizations which currently don't play any role in this sort of let's call it your, your sort of fulfillment work, understanding, uh, or if they do, it's more cursory, they will say, or in worst cases, it's actually leveraged as a weapon where it's basically, oh, this is the most meaningful work in the world. And so therefore you should sacrifice everything for it, which is the worst extreme of it. I always, this is where some of the, the, the readings, which I'm still learning and still trying to understand around total work and, and all that come up is there's an inherent assumption in this debate around what role should organizations play in providing meaning, which is that you, you will find meaning in your work. And it's as someone who has basically been raised on startups where that was just a foregone conclusion. And my entire identity was building companies. Like it's difficult for me to reject that and say, wait, maybe the purpose of work is not to provide us with meaning and that we find meaning elsewhere. And that work is just work, a facilitation of kind of our existence. It's just work. We try and like worship it at times. We try and, and, and lift it up to this level of, look at what I'm doing and I'm going to change the world with this database startup. And so I, I think I, I can fight both sides of that argument where, you know, on the one hand, it's, man, that sounds like a pretty, that sounds like a, a pretty sort of drab state where you're doing all this work but you acknowledge that it has no meaning and that, that doesn't seem that exciting. And so I think there's a nuanced 
like question among question that will lead to more questions within that exploration. But I think it's an interesting one because yeah, I think this is getting to be fun now because you also write about the importance of one-on-one interactions. Yeah. The exchange of energies which come from yeah. one-on-one with their people. Hasn't that become just more system-oriented? And when that energy exchange is not there, what are they ending up being? It's a, it's a terrifying question. I think that what I find interesting about all of these changes that are happening, the remote work growth and enforced in particular by this pandemic, is that most of these are either accelerating or exposing. Like they either accelerate something that was already happening. So in in this case, remote work, it was already happening and it's just, it got a speed boost. And this is the case, I think, with education as well as sort of corporation. So as first example is education. People are looking at education and saying, oh my God, look how horrible these Zoom classes are. They are so empty. What is the point of this curriculum? We could replace it with this and this. And it's those problems actually did exist before. But, and the same thing with corporations, like people are working remotely and they're like, oh, you don't even have to go to the office. But now people are starting to see what were those things? What was that energy exchange that was happening? So teachers are saying this, they don't always articulate it in this way, but they say students get lost if they don't come in and see us. They need to physically be with us and I need to look at them in the eyes. And what they're not saying is there's a physical energy exchange that happens that keeps these students energized, motivated, invigorated, whatever it is, even rebellious energy, like just, it's something. And so the same thing happens with work where I've worked remotely in the past, but this, this year was the first experience. Majority of people I work with, I've never met in person currently, which is wacky. It's just a strange circumstance. And I think I'm like, what do I miss? What do I miss most? And what I miss most is sitting at my desk, surrounded by a bunch of other people, and one of us just turns the chair and just says, hey, did you see that thing? Yeah, what'd you think about that? And then you just start talking and you talk about whatever it is and, and you end up from one conversation to another or walking with someone to get food. Those, it's actually the in-betweens. I think someone had articulated this, I forget, but people look at meetings and they look at calls, but they don't talk about the in-betweens. That five minutes that it takes you to walk with your coworker to that next meeting, that is actually a very important thing. It's extremely important. We don't look at it that way, but it's actually extremely important. And people have difficulty accepting that because they have difficulty accepting that maybe the most important thing that happened today was a mindless walk with another person because it it just seems like it's very unimportant and, and lowly. For, for us. But that's ultimately what, what every sign is telling me. I wrote recently uh, a piece called The Body Knows When It's Alone. And the premise of that piece was basically that I was in calls like constantly. I was having Zoom calls and group calls and one-on-one calls. And my body felt like physically ill because I hadn't seen another person in many weeks. And so it told me something. One is that your body is much more intelligent than you think it is. It knows like this little deception does not work on it. it. It has some idea basically that there's some difference in physical interactions. And I was reading this, uh, this article which talked about, they did a bunch of research where they looked at people who had been completely alone physically and people who had been surrounded by others. And the people who were alone actually were more likely to get sick 
they were more likely to catch colds and fevers. And they studied and they said their immune systems were, were like weaker as a result. Now, this was fascinating to me, and I'll tell you why. So if you think about it, you would think, oh, I'm on my own now. I'm alone. So I'm more at risk, right? I'm more vulnerable to threats. So logically, my body should be more resilient. But no, it's the opposite. So what does that say? What it says is the body basically looks at you and says, you are amongst others. You must stay healthy or else you will get others sick. That is the most important. Oh, you are by yourself? Okay. In the worst case, something happens to us. Maybe we pass away. Maybe we don't. And to me, that's a narrative that I'm placing upon that research. Obviously, the research doesn't say that. But to me, I think it's a signal that fundamentally our purpose here is to be with each other, is to facilitate and participate in this collective, which is why does a single walk for two minutes mean more than anything else? Because you did it with another person. And so like every sign I keep getting is, no, that's what we're here for. That's the things, what are the things that give you the most energy? It's when something you did has some impact on someone and you receive something, you connect with them, you energize through them. This conversation that we have, right? It's this energy that, that, we're, that we give each other through that. But I think these are all being exposed and, and we haven't really had opportunities to look at them closely because we've been so, everyone's just so busy just working. And now finally people have space, which a lot of people don't like. Like they, they have room to think and hear their thoughts. As Pascal says, I forget the quote exactly, but it basically is to the effect of the man's greatest challenge is, is sitting alone with his thoughts. Like basically that's the thing that a man hates or mankind hates most is that. And I think it's an interesting time. I think all these things are coming to the fore and it's, we'll see how people acknowledge it. Will they just be like, oh great, vaccine's out. Everything's back to normal. I want to go back to my regular life. Or will they... Be like, hey, wait a minute. What did this tell us? What did this whole experience tell us? What should we take away from it? How should we behave differently, appreciate things differently now that we've gone through this? I, I love the analogy of in-between. I think that was wonderful. And it's just like saying that we often find value in the cracks. Yeah. So these in-betweens are those cracks where we find that value. And sometimes from that value, a bigger value emerges. Absolutely. Yeah, I, it, it reminds me even, actually, I just watched Pixar's new movie, Soul. I don't know if you've seen it, but it touches upon this, this same idea. And since we talked about awareness, there's a, the same author, Anthony DeMello, has written this book called uh, Song, The Song of the Bird. And in it, it's basically a bunch of kind of poems and uh, different, I guess you could call them. Oh yeah, here it is. They talk about this actual poem in here, which is basically, okay, so here's the quick story. Excuse me, said an ocean fish. You're older than I, so can you tell me where to find the thing that they call the ocean? The ocean, said the older fish, is the thing you are in now. Oh, this? But this is water. What I'm seeking is the ocean, said the disappointed fish as he swam away to search elsewhere. So, like, they just casually fuse that into the movie, but it's a really powerful construct to be like, we can talk and be engaged in intellectual discourse to seek meaning and find meaning in the, oh, I need to reorchestrate my life and society needs to change and structures need to change. When it's like, hey, look at that leaf. Oh, that's pretty cool. That's yeah. it. Yeah. That's it right there. But I think it really goes back to our unwillingness to acknowledge that as something that has great meaning because we think it's so futile and so undeserving 
of our attention, unwarranted, like unworthy, like not grand enough. We basically build ourselves with grandeur. Yeah, I think, let, let me see if I can put this right. We have just not been taught, trained, maybe it's because of that conditioning, but we have just not been taught or trained to notice that divinity in life. Totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think you're hundred percent noticing the divinity of everyday life. Like that's a great way to put it. And I think you're hundred percent, especially, I think it varies, but most upbringings, most childhoods do not experience any kind of education around that sort of awareness. It's really around what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Who are you going to be? How much are you going to make? And the more you analyze, I feel like it always really comes back to this concept I've been exploring, which there are many terms for it, but this concept of the ego that tells us these stories that we need to do this or we need to do that or your inner critic. And so that same critic that tells you this, stop paying attention to this stupid leaf, go get some work done, is you're basically, if you really pause and you're like, who is that? Who's saying that? Why? Where did that come from? So now you're pointing out there's an upbringing factor. So a lot of the stories, personalities, and voices in our ego are our friends, our parents, our families. So a lot of times that voice is your parent. So then you can go further and you can say, why is my father saying that? Why is my mother saying that? Why can't they see it? A lot of the base goal of an ego is to protect. So when it does these stories, it's not trying to harm you, at least when you study, it's basically trying to protect you. It's trying to tell you familiar stories because it's based on fear. It's afraid that you're going to get attacked by a wild lion or something. And you have to tell it like, it's okay. Because that's even what your parents were coming. Like, why are they telling you all this stuff? They're not trying to ruin your life. They are just afraid you're going to prepare and and without the tools that you need to survive. And I think having these conversations that sort of change, what does it mean to survive? What, you know, what is the point if I get the end of my life and I survived it, but I didn't live it? And these are one of those things I I am sure someone listening is, wow, that was a nice little token line. But really, I do think those questions go deep and you have to analyze what is the source of them before you can actually overcome. And, and that's what a lot of what I've started to do is actually observe throughout the day, every single day, try and observe, oh, interesting, wonder what that was about. And to have more of an objective view of those stories because they are just stories. An example was I was writing, actually this essay I just talked about, this body essay. So I first had the idea for it, okay? I got really excited. My, the stories were like, this is gonna be amazing. This is a great idea. Your post is going to look great. Everyone's going to love this piece. And I paused and I looked at it and I was like, wow, that's a, it's a pretty ambitious view of this essay. It doesn't exist yet. Already it's being clapped and lauded by some, okay, maybe. Yeah, that could happen, but that seems a little excited. And I just observed that. Then I'm writing the story. And of course, I think it's terrible. I'm like, this is the worst thing I've ever written. (laughs) This doesn't make any sense. And then I pause and I look at that and I'm like, wow, your story has changed quite drastically since yesterday. Just a minute ago, we were looking. And so then you start to see, oh, these are just really varied images and hallucinations and pictures, movies, really, 
that that are being played for you and you're looking at them and and oh your goal is to protect me you're afraid that i'll be hurt so you're telling me that it will be received you're afraid that i'll be hurt by publishing it so you're telling me it's going to be awful so i don't ever share it and you have to just look at it objectively and now i just start to laugh and just be like that's a funny story uh, that's a good one and it reduces the power significantly because otherwise it really was overbearing in a lot of cases and so that is the practice we can start to see there's a psychologist i can share the link afterwards but she talks about this practice it's called doing ego work which is first to observe then to document you start to notice the patterns then you can actually befriend it you can even name this ego and then there's more advanced work which is to recognize when you discover the triggered ego i don't know if this has ever happened to you but someone says something to you a nonchalant harmless statement and you just react like this and that and how many instances do you need exactly and what what i think is really fascinating is sometimes you'll say things like oh i didn't mean to say that yeah just analyze that state like like i have said that and then just analyze that what does it mean to say something you didn't intend to say what is that how is that even possible if you think about it logically and so in most cases that is your ego coming in taking over it's been triggered by something sometimes a, a friend or 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 my wife or someone says something and it looks like a familiar scenario like maybe when i was a kid and this happened or when i was a, in college and that happened and i think it's the same scenario and my ego is triggered and it comes in i will protect us quick respond in this way to provide defense and the person is like dude i just asked you to go and, and move this thing from there to there <laughs> calm down salman and i'm like i don't know why that happened i don't know and i started to notice those and it doesn't mean you can just cut it out i actually think that's the thing you can't just completely change yourself but you can at least observe yourself start to forgive yourself for being who you are and put yourself more at ease so that you are more like here rather than in your head just watching movies it's like how much of your life do you spend just watching that movie in your head actually quite a lot and so what can you do like it's okay we're not at risk no one's no one's going to hurt us right now we're safe and then you can start to be here and be more centered but i really think that is the kind of work that will allow you to finally be in a place of enough safety enough comfort that you can then see the leaf like otherwise you're too scared too panicked too busy too overwhelmed to even notice it and it's not about intentionally wandering around looking for leaves it's about creating a sense of ease you literally can feel your body loosen become more jelly like and then you start to see these things now i'm saying it as though it's something i'm doing all the time it's a very difficult practice I think I have maybe tiny glimpses of it sometimes but it's clear to me that it's worth creating intentions to try and and move towards these states. So that's right. That's absolutely right and I'm glad you ended it with that disclaimer. We got to be real. We got to be real. For the last year or so I have been studying a little bit and reading a little bit about Vedanta and mm. the Upanishads and stuff particularly when we talk about ego stuff and all. They say yeah. that when your emotions are overruling your intellect that mm. is the time when you are acting out of some or the other kind of ego but when your intellect is ruling over your emotions and in other words i i think that is what emotional intelligence means 
that when your intellect is ruling over the emotions, then you have a certain objectivity, a certain rationality in what you are doing. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to relate to what you said. Totally. No, that makes total sense. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like there, there are two parts of it. The way that you're describing it, there are two parts, right? Almost like to your brain. This reminds me of, I read a book on meditation. I always forget the, the title of it. It's actually quite a, quite a famous book, but it's very technical about the practice of meditation. And one of the things it talks about is basically how we have our reactive side of the brain and our contextual side of the brain. And the contextual side is like slow. It actually goes and looks into memory and it makes decisions based on context. Yeah. And the reactive side is like, I don't know, just think. And because of the way that our lives have become constructed now, where we are online, on demand at all times, you must respond to the phone, to the TV, to the laptop, to people constantly. So you're trained basically to be in reactive mode and the contextual side, which is your more intelligent side, the intellectual side basically goes by the wayside. It doesn't need to be, it doesn't get activated as much. And I still remember like realizing that actually meditation is purely the practice of leveraging your other sides of the brain to observe those thoughts as they come up. Whereas normally a thought would come up and you react immediately. I'm sorry for the clap, but I got excited. And the thought would come up. That's the thing, you get excited and you react to think this, think that, think this. It teaches you to slow down and pause and look at it and then think about it and then say, oh, okay, what do, what, what do we think about this thought? So you're right in that you are trying to build more intelligence about the emotion. It's not really that you're making it go away. You're just being more intentional and in control, really. If you think of it that way, one wants to be in somewhat in control. And when you're not doing this, when you're a slave, basically, to the thought, you're just, you're not in control. You're just walking around, reacting to this Slack message, then this text, then that, then this, and that. And you're just saying whatever you can just to get through the day and then you go to sleep if you can. <laughs> I'm reminded of this experiment with Charlie Chaplin. He went on to a stage and he said some, he said a nice joke and people laughed. In typical Charlie Chaplin style, everyone laughed about it. And he repeated it again the second time and less people laughed. Then he repeated it again the third time and no one laughed. And then he said, guys, what I'm trying to do is that I'm just trying to tell you that this is a joke. It's a positive, happy thing which I'm sharing with you. And First time all of you laughed, second less, and third time no one laughed. Then why are you always thinking about the negative things? If for the positive thing or the happy mm. thing, you could think only once. Yeah. Then why does that negative thing keep going on in your head? Yep. You don't have that right, he said. You don't, yeah. have, you don't have to do that. And, and you talk about meditation and you talked about building those spaces. And you talked about your own journey, your struggle internal and external struggle, which you yourself even face now. Yeah. So how has this building space helped you? How have you kept up to it? You know, I think everyone intuitively knows that this helped, but how do you keep up to it? Yeah, it's hard. I, I, I definitely have had, I would say now it's been almost, it's going to come up on a year of this sort of part-time experiment pretty soon. And so I started to notice the appearance of very compelling stories in my ego of, hey, Salman, you were a startup founder. Like, 
now look at you. You're just, what are you even doing? You're just some part-time and you write this and write that. What's going on there? And, and I think that there is no quick answer to how to deal with those shadows as they are called. But I do think one has to adapt and one has to recognize that, like in my case, I actually did notice that I had a desire to work on something bigger. So I recognized that the stories that were appearing were saying, hey, what if you were to run another startup? But if I really looked at that story, it's actually a pretty flimsy story because I was like, yeah, I'd actually, I'd, A, you should only do that if you really have an idea you are willing to sacrifice every part of your life for. And I knew I was not in that place. And B, I still had a lot of creative ideas that I wanted to pursue and I would have to give all of those up. And C, I would need to start working extremely long hours, whereas right now I do not. I work very reasonable hours. And so when I analyzed it, I was like, this is actually a pretty bad story. <laughs> and so I can, I think that's the way to deal with some of those urges is to recognize what are they actually asking for? But there was one part of that, which was, I think Salman, you are writing your weekly newsletters and you write your essays and you tweet, but what about making something larger? That's what, if you think about a startup, it is a much larger project. And that's where a desire came for me to basically start compiling a book where I thought that would be a really great way for me to take some of these lessons, take some of my writing muscles and start composing what I think is, here are some things I've learned that may help you. And so I did start actually writing it as a more traditional, I guess you could call it like how to be independent sort of business book. And I may still write that someday, but because I was creating a lot of the space, I, I would just be drawing and I would be reading some of these I read children's books sometimes just for fun. And I looked at that. And one thing I thought about was I noticed that, as you said, it's very difficult for adults to give themselves permission to play and to do this kind of thing. And so I wanted to write a book for those adults to encourage them to be more playful. So how can I share these ideas? But also, it's basically like it has illustrations. It's like a little children's tale. The book, Little Prince, I mentioned, it really is probably my biggest inspiration. In the book, it's, it's not really for kids. It's not really for adults. It's basically just how to be a kid and how to be playful. And I would say in these times when I'm really questioning myself a lot, I lean even more heavily on these sources of inspiration. I don't just look at them as some book in my bookshelf. For example, there's another book called Six Animal Plays by Frank Carpenter. And I had purchased it because I like the illustration style. The illustrations are by a guy named Ronald Searle, and I'm learning how to illustrate. I love his style. But the book is literally a collection of six plays with animals in them. And he published this in 1953. And I'm reading it now. It's a really thin, simple book, and it looks like this. And there's little illustrations and whatnot. But I, it occurred to me, like, this person wrote this book almost 70 years ago. And they didn't become world famous because of it. But here I am reading it and gaining energy out of it. And so to me, I don't really necessarily have a goal of becoming some kind of full-time bestseller author or anything like that. I just have a goal of writing something that I would have loved to read and would have helped me give myself permission to do what I'm doing earlier in life. And so I think it is important, even though you're creating empty space, 
to identify some kind of, let's call it North Star or some kind of important mission that you feel you can remind yourself that's what you're working towards and all the sacrifices and the confusion and the discomfort is a sacrifice for that. And, you know, how to find what that is, I don't necessarily know. I think we first connected through that thread that I wrote, which talks about building a a checklist. I call it an independent checklist of things that you need in order to give yourself this space. And so I think that you may not know what that thing is. In, In my case, I didn't know. And it may be that I'm talking to you about this goal now, and maybe in six months, it'll be a different goal. I don't know. But I do know that I needed time to give myself space to start writing things, start drawing things without a purpose, just letting things out. Not everyone is as prolific when they are working in full-time jobs because it's really difficult. In my case, I needed to be working part-time to see all of these things. And naturally something came up and then I had to be more intentional and say, what is this thing? What is the urge? What do I really want? And I'm glad that I've been careful about it because I think if I had just gone and done the first instinct, I would have started to write this sort of business book. And I don't think it would have served the urge that I have, which is to try and have this more playful angle to it. And it was important for me to be patient. So A, I needed the privilege that I have now of some kind of foundation, which you know is from working for many, many years, but I needed that and I need to give myself permission to Actually, the hardest thing is friends come up to you and they're actually one thing I noticed is there's two kinds of people, not two kinds of people, but there's two kinds of conversations. One conversation is, hey, Salman, are you still doing that writing thing? Another conversation is, hey, so when are you going to write a book? So those are very different conversations. One conversation is someone who's, oh, you're doing this weird thing, which is out of context for you, because my picture of you is you're like a startup person. So This must be a phase or some kind of silly little endeavor. Another person is like, oh, wow, you're working on this other thing. When are you going to be even more bold? When are you going to take even more risks to fulfill this vision that you maybe once casually mentioned to me? You can imagine who you want in your circle, right? Part of it is important in recognizing who are the people around me? What are the influences? Who am I following on Twitter? So that I'm reminded that it's okay for me to keep going in this direction. And not only that, but people who would encourage me to go even further. So I would say those are some specific tactical things is try and find that or give yourself the space for the mission kind of to appear and then surround yourself with certain kinds of people. Because it's not as simple as just, oh, find successful people and follow them. I've run into in circles like, oh, this person like launched a course and, and wrote an ebook on this topic and it's selling, here's the numbers and, and all of that. That's not particularly encouraging for me. What is encouraging is someone who's, hey, I've never done this before, but here's this thing. Oh, that's very encouraging for me. I like, so, so being more intentional about who, who you surround yourself with and remembering those inspirations. I really do keep Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, Frank Carpenter, Ronald Searle, all these people who have created things that are giving me life. I really keep them in my head every single day. And I think about them and I think about, like with the little prince, Antoine, he wrote that book in exile during the war as a letter, basically, to his friend, who, who his co-pilot, his, his, another pilot who he, who he's good friends with. He wasn't trying to publish a book. He was trying to share with the world these 
feelings and, and, and thoughts he had around those relationships. And I think that is beautiful. And so I try, I don't ever aspire to write anything like he did. What he wrote is a masterpiece. So you can have your own visions and you can, you have to remind yourself, I have a little board I wrote up and I have these little reminders on there of protect your time. Take number one seriously. Number one is the, the book project because as a generalist, you'll understand we do too many things yeah. and then we don't make progress on the most important thing. Yeah, that was a lot of random tidbits, but yeah, it, it's a mix of them. Yeah, so to write a book, don't try to write a book. Exactly. Let it create the conditions that allow for it to appear. Yeah. Yeah. And talk to us a little bit about Ikigai and polymathism. Uh, that is a, a fascinating topic. I, I first encountered that, that graphic around Ikigai, which, which basically talks about combining things that you're really good at, things that you really enjoy, and things that the world basically wants. And basically, when you find these sort of intersections, that's when you are able to create things that are both meaningful to you and meaningful to others and basically feasible. Like they're, they allow you to keep working on those things and find a life out of them. I think that when it comes to being more of a generalist, you basically provide yourself with more opportunities to discover those kinds of intersections. And I think that it's really about promoting optionality for you to discover those channels and then going really deep into each one. I think that's one thing that doesn't always come across when people look at the idea of being a generalist or, or kind of approaching polymathic identities is recognize that you are doing exploratory sort of search scanning, but when you find a signal, you, can, you need to go quite deep into that signal and give it time and energy and, and devotion to really discover what's there. If you're just hitting the surface of a bunch of stuff, you're not really going to find the real meaningful work. And I think that there's actually a lot of back and forth and different ways to interpret that Ikigai mentality. And even going back to our earlier discussion, the question comes up like, should you be searching for meaning through your work component? But I feel like it's, a, it's an ambition that you can have. And it's one that will lead you to search for that meaning whether it comes through work or any other channel is it it'll encourage you to live your life in a way that recognizes that part of the work is to identify the work right is to is to do the exploration and giving yourself permission and giving yourself space that's work but it's work that you deserve it's that's the thing we most of us don't think we deserve that and so we don't give that to ourselves but hopefully through conversations and listening to, to the ones that you have and, and seeing your example as well, people know that there's room to explore. You have been a DJ too. So what are some of the most inspiring Bollywood numbers for you? Oh my God. So actually there was a set I did for a friend's party and it was actually just a casual party and we rented out this club and I remember... There was like a whole sequence. I'm going to just link you to the set afterwards and you can include it. But I do recall that like I had DJed lots of different kinds of music. Like I've DJed electronic music and things like that. But a Bollywood song, when you have a group of people that are like really energized about it, I've not seen anything like that. <laughs> There's just like the energy. I still remember like that whole sequence exactly what yeah it, it, it's it, there's so many different ones that i can talk about but like 
Amplifier is one of my favorites. It's more Bhangra. But there's a bunch of there's a bunch of sequences in that set. And later it ended up being like picked up in Mumbai by some I don't actually know where, but it ended up being like I gained like twenty thousand or so followers on SoundCloud just from that one set. But I will say Ani Disco Chili is probably the loudest, most hype, insane response I've ever seen. Like people just lose it to that song and it's hilarious. I actually considered playing it again in a set, which I've never done. But like the minute it came on, especially in this set, oh, it was so much fun. And Salman, in the work which you are doing now, when I look at your website, the opening lines say, I write the quick brown fox newsletter. Yeah. And that's how at this phase of life, you want to primarily identify yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So what is it that you are doing to keep yourself and therefore the newsletter relevant to to the reader? Yeah, that's a good question. I think when I started out the newsletter, I didn't know what it was about. I was just committing to myself that I will share what I have to say and see what comes out. And my expectations were that, oh, I have just spent more than a decade building startups in so many different capacities. I'm sure, and but I've never written anything about them. And so my expectation was that I was gonna share a bunch of stuff and lessons learned from startups and things like that. It turned out that I didn't really write anything about startups or, or my startup past. What I ended up doing was I actually started engaging in, when I say creative, in in the most truest sense of the word, I would just make drawings and animations and little like pieces of what I would say are art and describe the process that I'm going through as I'm working on them. And then I would talk about them in a very introspective way. The writing ended up being a source of building self-awareness which I didn't actually expect. And I also didn't know if that was valuable. But one day, I think it was like four or five months in, my newsletter had been submitted to some indexing sites and some different categories where they share newsletters. And people had used the words like creativity and self-awareness to describe what the newsletter was about. And I realized that, oh yeah, people, one of the comments I had gotten was very specific about this, where they said, so many of the newsletters I read are about business newsletters that are very transactional. But with yours, it's clearly just like a friend that's talking to me about stuff they're going through and, it, and it's very personal. And I have gotten a lot of basically feedback from folks. That's what they resonate with most is just this honest voice of what is going on in this world. And I knew immediately that this wasn't going to be a path that led to explosive growth, for example. I've written about this too, but I think at some point you have to choose, am I going to write a newsletter that is niche and very clear, targeted to a specific purpose? Oh, I want to write foreign business analysis on China or something like that. Anyone who wants that will subscribe to that and you can grow quite quickly using techniques like that. Mine is more like, I'm probably going to talk about self-awareness, probably going to talk about creativity, It's going to be, here are all the different things I'm working on. I am polymathic or generalist in mindset. One must be careful not to label yourself in that way, but in mindset at least. And it is a mix. It is a surprise. You'll see like art just show up in there. You'll see poems show up in there. You'll see essays. And so for me, it's actually much more valuable 
to slowly build an audience that is interested in me and what I'm up to than an audience that is interested in a very specific project or, or capacity that I'm operating on. And I call, I think of it as freedom. Like it's amazing to me that people do subscribe regularly and they read it often. And I had reached the one year milestone just a couple of weeks ago and noticed there are people that have read every single edition since the first one, 42 editions ago. And to me, that's remarkable because it really is a statement that what people are looking for, I think, especially now is the humanity in things, the sort of the real connection with people. They have more than enough access to the other kinds of information analysis, which play an important role. But it's funny, most of the times when I write a newsletter, if I look at it with one eye, I will say, this analysis I did on this thing is the most credible thing. This part here where I just talk about a tree that was near my house that I have named Phil, and I visited this tree named Phil, and sometimes I hug the tree or talk to the tree. That was the most important thing to the most people. And it tells me a lot. It tells me a lot about how starved people are, I think, for just, just people talking about, but let's be, I will give myself some credit. It's not just, you can't just be like, today I did this and that. There is a narrative to it. There is poetry to it. There is prose to it. There is reflection. So what did you take out of this experience? What does it mean? Yes, my body was sick and I was suffering, but why? Oh, okay. It's it talk about the loneliness impact and technology and how it's exposing these different things. So I think in this way, I'm able to use sort of my analytical brain and my thirst for learning to apply lenses on what is happening in life and then try and use my creativity to express that. And I, I feel really lucky that there's different mediums I can express it in. Like I also draw comics sometimes. And it's remarkable to me how effective comics are. I actually did a test, I guess you could call it. I had a blog post and a comic, which basically expressed the same thing. And of course, the comic was shared more, which makes sense because it's just a shorter medium. But people remember to this day every detail of the comic. They and it, and it emphasized to me the importance of visuals. And, and so that's why I, I spend more time with illustrations and I try and include illustrations with my writing. These are all things that I'm learning just through blind experimentation. Like it's not, I don't need any permission. I can just be like, oh yeah, here's a poem. Oh, you write poems? I don't know. There you go. I, I think the good part about your uh, newsletter is that while each one of them is in itself a completion, but there is a certain linkage between all of them also. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that yeah. something personally for me, I think that is very satisfying and that it, it hmm. gives me more dots to connect. Interesting. Oh, so. Yeah, that's good feedback. That's good to know. There are folks who I've seen that have slowly started to build these, they call them digital gardens of their yeah. ideas. Yeah. And they connect. And so I have started to take some of the pieces from newsletters and put them into this digital garden. But at the same time, I tend to lean more in the, the less sort of researchy and less sort of formal analytical writing and more just like emotional, spiritual, looking for that side of things. And so I think what you're describing is the feeling. Like there's more of a feeling yes. that you get when you're reading it, which to me is like something I do actively try to achieve is that I want 
people when they're reading it to see that it is me and to hear my voice, even if they've never heard it through the writing, which I think is the most one can do is presenting a part of themselves. I do try to challenge myself a little bit too, where I think like certain essays, I like to think that you have to lose, you have to lose a little bit of yourself in it. And when you do that, when there, someone is reading it, they see that because there's literally a piece of you that you took out. And so sometimes it's very painful. There's been some very difficult things. I wouldn't say that difficult. I've written about some really difficult things, but I would say when I write something and it was very easy to write, like it just was like, yeah, of course I'll just write that. Then I think twice, like, what, what am I saying here? One of the first people that I learned writing from, it was very recently, just this last year, uh, I took David Perel's Rite of Passage uh, course. And, and that helped kickstart my writing career, really, or writing endeavors, I guess. I won't say career. But I remember I had written this, one of my early essays, I had written about traffic congestion. Because I'm very, like, I'm an urban, active, urban transit sort of activist. Like, I think a lot about how public transit is a better solution for us and things like that. And I wanted to present a case of why tra traffic is bad and how public transit is good. And, and I was so nervous because I'm not someone who's uh, an authority on this. I haven't studied or worked in transportation planning. And so I did a lot of research, read different books and was quoting many sources. And so I published this essay, which basically was like American traffic congestion is a crisis. Look at all this data that proves it's a crisis. See, here's more data that proves it's a crisis. Therefore, it is a crisis. And I remember David was reading and he was like, this is extremely well written. But what are you saying here, though? I just feel like you're not saying anything. And he was right. I had a lot of feelings about it, but I didn't say anything in that essay. And ever since that moment, I was like, all right, now I have permission. I basically, I gave myself permission. Ever since then, I lean more the opposite direction. Like this essay about the body I wrote recently, there was research I found, but I didn't include it because I realized if people want to research, they will find research from people who, are, who provide it in an excellent way. Sometimes I'll link to it. But primarily, I find there is a lot of wisdom in our experiences, and we don't give them credit. And so now I'm trying to, with reason, not getting carried away, but give myself and what I have learned through my experiences more credit and come and say, hey, this is what I'm going through. This is what I think it is. I've done some research, but basically, I want you to know this is what I'm going through. And I do my best to say it in a way that is a little poetic or has some prose so that people can read it and they feel something. They say, yeah, I'm going through that. I feel this. So I think that's part of what I do actively try and achieve is take a piece of me, put it through, make it beautiful in its, in its ugliness and darkness, if it is, because that's life. It's never yeah. all sunshine. Someone said this, I don't know if you've heard it, of all those arts in which the wise excel, nature's chief masterpiece is writing well. Wow. I love that. That's amazing. I got to write that one down, dude. That's <laughs> sick. Yeah, I feel like people are now discovering it more and more, but writing is so valuable. It helps you think more clearly. It helps you articulate. Like the, the best thing I find is sometimes I don't know how I feel about something. And then I try and tell you how I feel about it through writing then I know how I feel about it. Yeah. That's a remarkable thing. Imagine how many things you go about and you're just like, I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know how I feel about that. I'm confused about most of how I feel. Just try and tell someone. Actually, conversations also help with this. And conversations are usually the premise of what gives me the confidence to go forward with 
certain kinds of writing is I just talk to someone about it and they're like, what are you talking about, man? And I'm like, oh, actually, this and that. One of the things I wanted to ask you, how has your growing up affected what you are? Are there any deeper roots to what you are today? I'm sure there are and ones that I'll never fully process. But that said, to, for starters, my father is, is a doctor. My mother is a gynecologist, was a gynecologist. My sister became a dentist and my brother did his PhD in cognitive psychology. And then I went and was like, I want to play with computers. <laughs> so I think that from an early age, I felt I had discovered my love for programming in grade 12, like the last minute I could have discovered anything. And it was in this one class where I saw someone presenting the idea of recursion. And it was just such a beautiful, poetic thing to me that I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. I want to go into computer software engineering, computer science. And, and I was lucky that I had that moment because without it, I don't think I would have had much conviction about anything in terms of my profession. To be completely honest, I felt I was a good student. I would study hard and get good grades. But other than that, I had no real concept of what I wanted. And so I look back and I'm like, wow, that was very lucky. I just randomly took that class and I found something. And I think that since then, I had enough conviction to take it, but I, it still became very much a sort of a lifetime goal to prove either to my parents or to, to someone that, yes, I'm not a doctor, but I'm still worthy or I, I'm still something. And when I, even when I graduated, a lot of my peers had joined big tech companies. And I, on the other hand, was joining these two friends who I had met on an internship to some startup that I could barely describe to my parents in, in a language that they would understand. And so it was very much a, looking back, I feel like I had a lot of comfort with risk then. Like I left Canada as well. I moved to the Bay Area on my own which was also a whole sort of experience just to move somewhere. You don't know anyone. And so I think that gave me a lot of resilience against some of these challenges around how what I'm doing is perceived and how important that is to me or unimportant that is to me. I think that building a startup took so much out of me. That was five years of just brute effort. So I guess if your question is about growing up, I think you know, going even further back before these college days, like I lived in a lot of different places. I actually grew up in the Middle East, went to, and then went to high school in Canada and university in Canada, and then lived in America. And so in addition to just sort of going against the standard path that like my siblings had done, I also noticed in retrospect, there's a lot of like comfort with living in different conditions and different culture, having different, especially taught me a lot about embracing different mindsets. The cultures are so completely different in these different places that I'm describing. And so I always felt already that I'm a Muslim who's Indian. So in India, I'm a minority as a Muslim. Then I was in the Middle East, but I was Indian. So even though I'm Muslim there, I'm also Indian, so I'm a minority there. So when I go to Canada, I'm an immigrant right? Canada is probably the most welcoming, same as in the US. I'm just here. But everywhere I go, I'm not quite there. There's this concept of, okay, what is home to me? If someone asks me what is home, then I have to pause and I have to think about it. Is it 
I guess Canada because I lived there the long. Oh no, now I've lived in the Bay Area the longest. I guess that's home. Does home mean like where your parents live? Because to me that does mean a lot. Like I think of where my parents in India are as a home. And anyway, so I think these kinds of social upbringing experiences already gave me, I think, some resilience around. You're gonna have a confusing answer when people say where are you from. I will have to say. Okay, let me give you the answer to that. And so it's the same thing. Like most people, they do so many things in life just to avoid complicated answers to simple questions. Like, like people are like, what do you do? They want to have a nice, simple answer to that. And I think once you finally start to have complex answers to those questions, technically I do this, but I used to do that. What are you, Salman? I'm like, I don't know. It's really, it's up to you. Take, take a pick. Am I a startup founder? Am I just, I'm an engineer? Do I write? I don't know. It's up to you. And I think that that did prepare me a little bit. Now that you ask me, I think that it helped. It's not a comfortable thing. When I was a kid, it was very difficult because I'm a kid and I don't know what's going on. And I'm scared and conscious, self-conscious. And, but you never really grow out of those fears. You just learn to manage them a bit better. But I'm thankful and happy now. And you know, my parents are proud and, and, and supportive of whatever I'm doing. So I, I know that a lot of people, that is a big part of it, is that they would do things if their partner or friends or family or parents were more supportive. And those are the realities of it. It's, we've talked about financial and we've talked about personal, spiritual, but really a lot of times it's the people around you and your family and your conditions that make it seem like an impossible thing to, to escape. Like, how could I I'd be? This is the only world I know. And you're telling me about this other world. I don't know. It sounds scary. Yeah, it probably is scary. No, I think I think there's, there's a whole lot of truth in the way you have expressed this. Let me ask you a few rapid fire. You are most suited for that. Okay. <laughs> so here it is. These are gonna be one words. It could be a like a sentence, and I would like your creative expression on them. Oh gosh. Okay. Okay. First one, writing. I think it's a ways to improve your thinking is what I would always go to. Best way to improve your thinking. A channel that you can use to access your true selves. One-on-ones. The most high energy interactions you may ever have. Spirituality. Not just about religion. Leadership. More important for yourself than for teams. Devotion. I would say it's, it's an underrated part of how you can live a fulfilling life finding something to devote yourself to. Fantastic. You are the winner of the virtual. <laughs> oh my God. Is it a coffee with Karan Hamper? Those are, it's interesting. I actually feel like I'm not well suited to short answers because I, I always say this to folks is I t- if you ask me a question, I tend to go on and on as you have seen in this podcast. So like compression is, I don't know if it's my strong suit. I, I would say I did okay. I, I think it's, I was making you practice for your short stories. There you go. There you go. It's true. It's true. They've got to be shorter. I've edited them up. Yeah. I've edited the first and, one so uh, many times. Salman, is there anything else which you want to use this podcast to talk about? No, I think we covered everything. I appreciate you having me on. This, this has been a really fun conversation. I've loved sort of the different directions we've taken it. And yeah, I just hope that listeners who, who resonate with it, they should know you and I are both open to, to continuing these kinds of conversations. These are my favorite kinds of conversations. So if, if anyone's listening and they're thinking, hey, I, I have this thought around one of those things, just tweet at me. I'm at Dare to Rant. And I, I'm sure you can include some links in the show notes. But yeah, I think these are the most important 
kinds of conversations that we can have and I only want to have more of them. So I appreciate you hosting me and, and facilitating this. It's been a joy. Thank you very much, Salman. I think this was not really a podcast. It was more of a discussion. But I also want to tell all the listeners that they should go out and try your newsletter, The Quick Brown Fox. I think there is value in it. And I think there is something to gain for everyone in that. So Salman here wishing you, you are doing something courageous with a lot of conviction. And that is what Small Big Wins is about. So I wish you more courage and more conviction. Thank you so much. You've given me that with this conversation already. It was wonderful meeting you and and thank you. And I appreciate the work you're doing with these conversations on your podcast as well. I know a lot of people are listening. They see an example through these exchanges. They see a path. So thank you for giving that to people. It was equally awesome for me, even more, I would say. I think there was a lot to learn. And my learning always happens when I'm editing the podcast, you know? Oh, yeah, <laughs> I bet. You're probably going to glean a lot more from it. I, I would love to, to hear other learnings. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm glad we connected. And I hope it's, yeah, it's the, is it the 31st already there? So, yes. yeah. So we are almost there at New Year's. 2020 is finally going to be behind us. Happy New Year, my friend.